Lesson 7 for August 6 through to 12, Jesus Desired Their Good. Sabbath afternoon, August 6. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a role model in Jesus, but we also have a Saviour. This week we're looking at how he models for us the way to interact with people, to show them that you love them and that salvation is available. We pray that as we open your word, that it may jump out at us, that we may see what we need for our own personal and our own church life. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this work is Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Let's read that again, Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. On Sabbath morning, during Sabbath school and worship service, skateboarders can often be seen rolling past the main doors of a local Seventh-day Adventist church. Why? Because this church meets in a community youth centre facility right next to a skateboard park. And if you thought these skateboarders were an unexpected annoyance, think again. Instead, in an effort to curb the rising youth crime rate, the government in their city built the park to provide a place for its youth to engage in wholesome recreation. When the youth centre and skateboard park were finished, the government wanted a church congregation to hold its worship services in the community youth centre facility. The community leaders felt that the presence of a church would have a positive moral influence on the youth who used the park. They invited several churches of various Christian denominations, but only one accepted, the church that had Sabbath school and worship on Saturday morning. These Adventist church members were excited about moving into the centre, for the skateboarders were part of the group they wanted to reach. The local church's definition of church is a community that does not exist for itself. This should be the definition for all our churches as well. Sunday, August 7, Jonah in Nineveh. Question. Read Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, right through to chapter 4, verse 6. What serious attitude problem does this prophet have? Jonah 3, beginning at verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went up out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. In Jonah chapter 4, the prophet Jonah sits down east of the great city of Nineveh. He has delivered the message of doom that God has entrusted to him, he reflects on his journey, his reluctance to come to Nineveh, his runaway tactics, God's insistence in getting Jonah back on mission, the three-day episode in the fish, and the long journey inland from the coast. And for what? For God to turn around and show his grace on these despicable people. The people repented, but Jonah now feels betrayed. He feels dishonoured and used. His hope had been that the destruction of this heathen city of 120,000 inhabitants would show God's preference for his chosen people and vindicate Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites. Question. Read Luke chapter 19, verses 38 to 42. What is happening here, and what is Jesus' attitude toward the city of Jerusalem? Luke 19, beginning at verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Eight hundred years after Jonah, Jesus rides on a donkey over the crest of a hill overlooking Jerusalem. Shouts of praise to the King who comes in the name of the Lord are heard, along with echoes of hope declaring, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, as recorded in Luke 19.38. In the midst of this triumphal entry, as Jesus approaches the city, he stops and weeps, saying, If you, even you, had only known of this day, what would bring you peace? Note the contrast. Jonah reluctantly obeyed the command of God, caring little for the good of the inhabitants of Nineveh. Jesus approaches Jerusalem with one burden on his heart, that they might have the salvation he offers, and at such a high cost. Two cities, Nineveh and Jerusalem, two messengers, Jonah 
and Jesus. The difference is obvious. Jesus exemplifies the selfless, caring attitude that desires the good of the people. May we, through God's grace, reveal that same attitude as Jesus did toward the lost. And so, to finish the day, how might selfishness play into the attitude that leaves someone unconcerned about the salvation of others? Monday, August 8, The Anyway Principle A leper approaches Jesus and begs for healing. Conventional wisdom says that this man should be isolated. Jesus, the clean one, touches him and heals him anyway. Matthew 8, verses 1 to 4 describes it. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Peter denies Jesus three times during his trial, as recorded in John chapter 18. After the resurrection, having searched Peter's heart, Jesus reinstates him into his service anyway in John chapter 21. God's church in Corinth is unappreciative of Paul's authority and influence. Paul serves them anyway, as we read in Second Corinthians twelve, fourteen, and 15. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. This principle of anyway, or in spite of, is essential for revealing the character of the one who desired their good. As Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 640, Millions upon millions of human souls, ready to perish, bound in chains of ignorance and sin, have never so much as heard of Christ's love for them. Were our condition and theirs to be reversed, what would we desire them to do for us? All this, so far as lies in our power, we are under the most solemn obligation to do for them. Christ's rule of life, by which every one of us must stand or fall in the judgment, is, Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Matthew 7.12 End of quote. The golden rule is foundation to a mindset of ministry that thinks first of what is good for the ones we are serving instead of what benefits us. Question. Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 45, Luke 6, 27 and 35, and Luke 23, verse 34. What crucial point here has Jesus revealed to us in regard to our attitude toward a certain class of people? Well, first of all, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And Luke chapter 6 verses 27 and 35. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And verse 35. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and unholy. And Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Jesus is calling us to show love and be kind to people in spite of the fact that they hate you or are your enemies. Notice too that Jesus links these acts and attitude with the character of God himself in Luke 6.35. But love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. And so, to finish today, how do we understand the idea that God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked? How does this answer, for example, the question, why do the wicked sometimes prosper? How does Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 play into the picture as well? And Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 reads, Then Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Tuesday, August 9. Love never fails. According to Jesus, the two greatest commandments are love to God and love to neighbor, as we read in Luke ten twenty-seven to 28 So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. He also showed us who our neighbors are. In the following verses, Luke ten twenty nine to 37 But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do Likewise, no question, too, that Jesus' life from beginning to end was an expression of the pure love of God, who himself is love, as expressed in 1 John 4.16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Thus, if we are to reflect the character of God, if we're to help reveal to others the reality of God and what He is like, we are to love. Think about it another way. One of the greatest excuses that people have used to reject Jesus and Christianity as a whole has been professed Christians themselves. Question. What are some examples you can find in history, or even today, of how Christians, or at least people bearing the name Christian, have done some terrible deeds, sometimes even in the name of Jesus. Does not even the book of Daniel warn us about that? Well, let's have a look. Daniel 7, verses 24 and 25. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time." And Romans chapter 2.24 For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. It's no wonder that many people through the ages and even today have been turned off by Christianity as a whole. Thus the imperative to reveal Christ to others through our own lives should be stronger than ever. And nothing can do this more powerfully than the kind of love expressed by Jesus himself being expressed in our own lives as well. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What does Paul say love is? What does he say love isn't? What does he say love does? What does he say love doesn't do? In short, how is love to be expressed in our lives as Christians, and how does love fit in with how we are to be witnesses to our community? More important, what changes do you need to make in order to reveal this kind of love? So today I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 from a modern translation in modern English. It's from the God's Word translation. I may speak in the languages of humans and of angels, but if I don't have love, I am a loud gong or a clashing cymbal. I may have the gift to speak what God has revealed, and I may understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. I may even have enough faith to move mountains. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. I may even give away all that I have and give all my body to be burned. But if I don't have love, none of these things will help me. Love is patient, love is kind, love isn't jealous, it doesn't sing its own praises, it isn't arrogant, it isn't rude, it doesn't think about itself, it isn't irritable, it doesn't keep track of wrongs, it isn't happy when injustice is done, but it is happy with the truth. 
Love never stops being patient, never stops believing, never stops hoping, never gives up. Love never comes to an end. There is the gift of speaking what God has revealed, but it will no longer be used. There is the gift of speaking in other languages, but it will stop by itself. There is the gift of knowledge, but it will no longer be used. Our knowledge is incomplete, and our ability to speak what God has revealed is incomplete. But when what is complete comes, then what is incomplete will no longer be used. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, and reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I no longer used childish ways. Now we see a blurred image in a mirror. Then we will see more clearly. Now my knowledge is incomplete. Then I will have complete knowledge, as God has complete knowledge of me. Wednesday, August 10, The Second Touch Question. Read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. What spiritual lesson can we learn from the fact that Jesus' first healing touch didn't fully heal the blind man? Mark 8, verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. After Jesus spat on the man's eyes, he touched him and asked, Do you see anything? Why did Jesus spit on his eyes? Ancient literature indicates examples of the use of saliva by physicians. This miracle resembles somewhat the healing of the deaf and mute men in Decapolis not long before that, as recorded in Mark chapter 7 and beginning at verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrapata, that is, be open. Immediately his eyes were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. However, unlike all his other healing miracles, the cure for the blind man was performed in two stages. Question. Reread Mark 8, verses 23 and 24. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. The question is, 
How do you understand the man's answer to the question, Do you see anything? I see people. They look like trees walking around. That is, he could distinguish them from trees only by their motion. In a spiritual sense, how could we apply this incident to our own lives? It might be that after Jesus gives us spiritual sight, we are not totally restored. We might see people as trees, as objects. This could mean that we still are blind to them as real people with real needs. They are items, numbers, objects that we want to join the church, maybe to boost our baptism count or to make us look good. With such a self-serving attitude around them, many people are likely not to stay in such a church. Question reread Mark 8 verse 25. In this case, why might Jesus have deliberately healed the man in two stages? Mark 8.25 Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. The context of this story is that just before this healing miracle, Jesus was dealing with another kind of blindness. His disciples didn't understand the meaning of his statement to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod in Mark 8 verse 15. They thought it was because they didn't have enough bread for their boat ride. Jesus called them blind. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Not only people outside the church need Jesus' healing touch. Inside the church there is blindness. Partially sighted church members who see people as statistics and objects will not care or notice that many new babes in Christ slip out the back door of the church. They need Jesus' second touch, so they will see everything more clearly and will come to love others as Jesus did. Thursday, August 11, the Other-Centred Church. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5 read, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Question. In what ways should the principles expressed here rule our lives and impact how we relate, not just to church members, but to our community? When he was on earth, Jesus wasn't thinking about himself. His agenda was about desiring the good of others. Much of his ministry consisted of responding to interruptions, such as when Jairus interrupted him with a request to rush to his house to heal his dying daughter. This interruption then was interrupted by a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Let's look at that in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him. And he was by the sea, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So 
Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him, and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, Arise. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given to her to eat. Christ's church is his heart and hands on earth. Jesus loved people more than anything else, and a church that is truly his will do the same. Churches have agendas and goals, and that's good. An unconditional love for human beings will sometimes lead us to get out of our preconceived agendas, especially if those agendas distract from expressing God's love to others. For many churches, baptisms are high on the agenda. Baptisms are wonderful. Baptisms fulfill Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. But what is your church's motivation for baptisms? Is it self-serving? Is it to make the church look good and bring accolades to its pastor? Or is it because your church genuinely wants people in your community to enjoy the abundant life found by accepting Christ, as in John 10.10, 10, and to accept everything that he offers because you wish the best for them. Let's read John 10.10. 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. One church was running a much-needed soup kitchen in a depressed area of town. The pastor was heard saying, we must close this soup kitchen because no baptisms are coming from it. Another congregation had just built a new church building. They were very proud of it. When the pastor suggested inviting the community to come inside the church for such events as vacation Bible school or health screenings to expose people to the environment of the church, the first consideration was fear that 
the new carpet would get dirty and worn, and the new bathrooms might get defaced. Contrast these two churches with the church that was meeting in the skateboard park of a couple of days ago. So, to finish the day, read over the verses for today. How well do they reflect your own attitude toward them? How can we learn to experience the death to self that is needed to reveal these characteristics in our lives? Friday, August 12. Ellen White writes in My Life Today, page 186, In order to reach all classes, we must meet them where they are, for they will seldom seek us at their own accord. Not alone from the pulpit are the hearts of men and women touched by divine truth. Christ awakened their interest by going among them as one who desired their good. He sought them at their daily avocations and manifested an unfeigned interest in their temporal affairs. End of quote. How true that many people today, for various reasons, will seldom seek us of their own accord. Just as Jesus came down and reached us where we are, we need to do the same for others. On one level, this shouldn't be so hard. There are so many people out there with so many needs. The world is a hurt and broken place with hurt and broken people who in some cases simply crave someone to listen to them, someone to talk to, someone who cares. And of course, as a church body, we should be able to give them to some degree the physical help that they need. We need to be careful not to be guilty of what James warned about, having faith but not the deeds to reveal it. How interesting, too, that he expressed that warning not in the context of diet or dress or personal behaviour, but in the context of helping the needy. Anyone can say that they have faith. How we respond to our neighbour is the true measure of our faith. And that brings us to the discussion questions for this week. 1. Read James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. How can you help your church make sure that it is not guilty of doing what James warns about here? James 2, beginning at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 2. Think about some people in the Bible who demonstrated unselfish and caring service. For example, in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. That's Acts chapter 9, verse 36. What is your church doing to help others in modern Joppa? And three, it's easy to do good things when you are lauded and praised and held up as an example of good works or the like. But what about doing things for others that no one knows about, that no one hears about, and that no one, other than perhaps the persons helped, even cares about? And finally, question four. Someone asked a Christian, 
What is the purpose of your life? He responded, To give and ask nothing in return. How well does this answer encapsulate what our attitude as Christians should be? Inside Story Our mission story this week is part two of the one we started last week titled Lost and Found. At last, Denise arrived in northwestern Rwanda. There she met a kind man and his wife who befriended her. When she told them her story, they urged her to stop wandering and stay with them. They invited her into their home and shared their food. They treated her well and spoke to her with love. They told her about Jesus and how much he loves her. She learned that they were Seventh-day Adventists. Denise loved these people who wanted to help find her family. But when they found no living relative, they asked Denise's permission to adopt her. She agreed. Finally, she had a home again and someone to care for her. The couple often talked to Denise about God. They introduced her to Jesus, and soon she accepted him as her saviour. But often at night, Denise wondered about her birth family. Her adoptive father took Denise to Kigali, the capital city. He introduced her to the manager of the Adventist radio station, the Voice of Hope Radio, and there she told her story. The announcer invited anyone who knew anything about Denise's family to call in. Denise learned that her father had died in a refugee camp, but she never learned what had happened to her mother. She found out that she had other relatives in Rwanda, and one day she would like to meet them. But she is torn. She loves her adoptive parents and the God they taught her to love. They have given me spiritual roots and a hope for the future, she says. Although her earthly father is dead, Denise knows that her heavenly father loves her unconditionally. It is he who kept her alive as she wandered across several countries in search of a home and a family. So many people perished during the genocide, and yet God preserved me, she says. He saved me when I didn't even know him, and he brought me from death to new life in Jesus. The country of Rwanda has recovered significantly since the genocide. A new school of medicine at the Adventist University of Central Africa, located in Kigali, will train qualified health professionals to serve in a comprehensive health ministry in a region of the world where the doctor-to-patient ratio fluctuates between 1 to 16,000 to 1 to 24,000. Part of this quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will help to build dormitories and a cafeteria for the medical students. Thank you for giving. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. Faithful.